Welcome to this special edition of the Trash to Cash podcast series, put together for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's Disruptive Innovation Festival, November 2018. Trash to Cash is an EU-funded research project aiming to create new regenerated fibres from post-consumer waste. It's also pioneering a new way of developing materials, a whole new way of collaborating, bringing designers together with scientists and industry partners to make more meaningful products and methods for circular economy research. The project began in June 2015 and ends this month on the 30th of November 2018. And in the three and a half years that the partners have worked together, We've achieved a lot in terms of new insights, knowledge and business models, all derived from using textile waste to make new materials. We made a podcast series so that the partners could get to know each other and the listeners could find out more about our research. We made a total of eight episodes and you can now listen to some extracts. Michael from Alto University introduces us to the chemical process used to make regenerated cellulose fibres. Tina from Copenhagen Business School shares some of her user behaviour and market research ideas. Gustav from Research Institutes of Sweden tells us why LCA, life cycle assessment, and design go so well together. Julie from Van Berlo reflects on the way that the workshop methods helped the partners to see things differently. Hansu from Shoktas in Turkey gives us the industry partner perspective, why companies like Shoktas get involved in EU research projects. The interview clips from Matilda and Giada then build on this. With the Finnish brand Rayma, they have a long tradition in producing thoughtful children's wear design and finding a new way to do garment waterproofing would be a good enough reason in itself for them to get involved. For Grado Zero Innovation, it's all about exploring new frontiers and pushing the boundaries for the future of sustainable materials. And finally, the complex nature of the collaboration and the technologies involved are highlighted through Christian's podcast, where we talk about managing innovation and all the bright and beautiful people in this project. So we've just finished day one of workshop six here in London and I'm sat here with Michael Hummel. Your work is really at the heart of the Trash to Cash project. Would you tell us a little bit about the work? So we are the first link in the whole chain where we try to convert the trash into fibres that then everyone downstream takes over and makes something really valuable out of it. So you literally, you're taking trash and you're making it into a fibre. I'm going to need a bit more detail than that. So essentially it's textile wastes and to be honest we are not the very first link. That's VTT who is pre-treating the trash and then is handing it over to us in such a way that we can actually use our technology and convert it to fibres. And when you say ours, you mean Altochem? Altochem, yeah, that's yeah. correct, yes. So for our listeners that don't know about Iron Cell F, can you give us the simple explanation of what it is? Ion Cell F is a new method to produce so-called man-made cellulosic fibers. They are meant to replace or be an alternative to cotton. There has been a few fibers on the market. The most prominent are the viscous fibers and the tensile fibers. Viscous is a bit more popular also because they are produced in a lot larger scale. But the problem with viscous is it's 
connected to a lot of toxic chemicals. So the process is everything else than green, I would say. It's a good process. The fibers are good in the end. But the way to get to these fibers is something that is not compliant with the sustainability thinking of the 21st century. So there's a need for new processes. The tensile process that is also on the market is one of them, but is limited in possibilities. This is where we come into play. We have developed a similar process like the tensile process, but it is more versatile. And that is reflected in the trash that we can actually convert into high quality fibers. How would you describe cellulosics and their potential for us as a sustainable solution in the future? Cellulose is what we call a polymer, and some people might know that term, but they always connect it to synthetic polymers, that's oil-based products. And cellulose is a natural polymer. And essentially what that means is that it is many, many sugar units connected to each other, forming a very, very long chain. And cellulose is, in fact, the most abundant natural polymer on the earth. So in every biomass, you will find cellulose. It can be very little cellulose, like in algae. It can be cotton, where you have 90 and more percent of cellulose or it can be a wood tree where you have around 50% cellulose. But if you think about all the biomass in the world then it's easy to comprehend that it is the most abundant natural polymer on earth. So it's an amazing resource that has not been valorized enough so far I would say. So is it right to say that you're working closely with designers in developing all these ideas or is this purely a scientific adventure that you occasionally get out into the room with us lot? It started as a purely scientific adventure and it became a tight collaboration with designers and also producers, industrial corporates during the evolution of this whole process. And that was a very, very important step because that allowed us really to lift it from a small lab-scale project to something with real impact. And that's so valuable about this project because it brings all these different people into one room, literally. Yeah. And it forces us to develop a common language, which is obviously not easy, as you can see. I mean, oh, absolutely. We, we have to trust that it's going somewhere. I, I have absolutely no doubt that we are on the right tracks. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Tina Muller, a PhD fellow in the Department of Intercultural Communication and Management at Copenhagen Business School. Tina, thanks for joining us. Can you explain a bit more about what you do at CBS? I'm mostly working with sustainability scholars on different areas of research. And uh, me as a PhD student, I'm very fortunate. I get almost three years of time to do my very own research in sustainable consumer behavior. So I'm interested in what makes people buy things, what kind of things do they buy, and how does that relate to the values they have or how do they see themselves in the world, what kind of understanding of justice they have. Yeah, I find it fascinating actually, the work at Copenhagen Business School, because from a sustainable design perspective, we're putting these things out into the world and we just don't know enough about then what the consumers are doing with them and how they feel about them and how they interact with them. So what would you say is the key contribution from you and CBS to the Trash to Cash project? We in the consortium are mainly having a look at the consumer side. What do consumers actually want? What is the thing they're missing? But also what do they think about when they hear recycled material, for example, recycled clothing or recycled jeans. What kind of connections do they have in their mind with this kind of phrase? 
maybe what kind of doubt or problems, what kind of barriers do they have to buy a product made from that, but also what benefits do they see? So what could be strong selling points? What do you see as the biggest challenges for getting recycled material products accepted into mainstream consumer society? Yes, I think the intention behavior, this, the gap is a well-known phenomenon, which is mostly about walk their talk. But we have in, in general a problem that a big majority of consumers do acknowledge that there is a problem with uh, current consumption patterns and then they might ha have to be changed in the future. But they do not really start with themselves. Let's put it this way. The biggest challenges we see so far for recycled products and trash to cash are on the one side design challenges, I might call them, or some concerns of consumers regarding is it going to be a hippie thing? Is it going to be just looking as normal materials? Will it be fashionable? There were some concerns about color intensity. If I buy a product from recycled material, is that just as strong and as durable as a new product, a virgin material product? So that are some concerns consumers have that we kind of label as perceived concerns. And we do have to make a difference between those perceived concerns and then real problems with the recycled material. And one of that, of course, is what are the actual chemical processes behind it? And do we have a lot of water, a lot of energy that needs to be used to produce those um, recycled materials? Is it then actually really more environmentally friendly? Because we have to think that the consumer usually connects recycling, recyclability also with environmental benefit. And they are very cautious or suspicious if, they, if it's only greenwashing, if it's only seem to be better. But in the end, if you take everything into account, then it's not better. Last but a very important point that is definitely a real fact is price. And that also goes back to your question, why do people maybe do not buy more sustainable? Most of these products are more expensive. And if we look especially at the younger consumer group, the consumer group, we often want to target because they're open for change, they're open for new products. They are just not as affluent. They do not have the money to put a way higher price. So that is a real consumer concern. So we've just finished workshop seven here in Forli in Italy and I'm here with Gustav Sandin. Hello. Hello. Can you tell us a little bit about your role at SP? I'm an LCA, Lifecycle Assessment Researcher. I assess the environmental impact of new products and services that we develop in various projects, research projects. LCA. I always thought that was life cycle analysis. No. It's assessment. <laughs> yes. Yes, there were several terms 20 years ago and more, but then we agreed in the LCA community to call it life cycle assessment. And that's because it's not an analysis tool with a specific number, it's more like a value based judgment in the process. And therefore, the term assessment is more reflecting the true meaning of the tool. And that's very useful because LCA, then, this assessment, can be used to help us really understand the environmental impact of a product. Is that right? Yes. And what does that mean for fashion? What have you found out about fashion products? For example, we found out that the consumer transport to and from the store is an important part of the climate impact, whereas other transports in the supply chains are rather unimportant. 
We also found out that the washing temperature is not important in Sweden because we have a rather clean electricity production. It's 2-3% of the climate impact, whereas the energy consumed in the manufacturing in producing countries in Asia, that's a hot spot. We found that in China, washing can be a hot spot. So those are examples of things we found out. We also found out that fiber production is not the determining factor, but often the, the, the other processes after fiber production, fabric production, garment production, finishing, dyeing, etc. Those are very important from both an energy point of view, but also a chemical use point. So in a sense, LCA research is like myth-busting a little bit. Yeah, 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 exactly. What I realise as a designer is that LCA research is the truth. So you might be a, an avid natural dyer or you might be you know, somebody that wants to reuse material time and time again. And in a way, I think what happens is a culture of this is the best way develop this is the only way and I found that LCA is a really good way to understand that what we need actually is more people that are holistic thinkers that actually see that that's part of the big picture of a product yeah. how has working with designers informed your approach to LCA so there's a reason for having a tighter dialogue with people that actually take decisions on the future garment, like designers. And translating the, the numbers, the results we get, to conclusions that are targeted to a specific audience. Designers is an important audience in the fashion industry, so we need to be able to communicate with designers is important both for when we frame our studies, but also when we deliver our studies. Because a lot of NSA studies are done without reaching the people who make decisions. It's about having a less reactive approach or yeah. view of LCA, i.e. coming in at the end to sort of make a score, yeah. and using LCA as a proactive yeah, yeah, approach yeah. so that you can actually begin to design out the highest impact. Yeah. And, and a learning process. So I'm sat here in the beautiful, warm Milanese sun with Julie Hornicks from Van Berlo. We're going to talk to Julie now about perceptions and drivers, or to put it another way, why we care about the work being undertaken in Trash to Cash, and maybe why our listeners should too. How is and why is Van Berlo doing the Trash to Cash project? I think it's because of our, well, our main slogan is create the difference. And I think that's also what triggers us in this project, is trying to create the difference. I think it's a lovely idea on how we are trying to recycle or even upcycle textiles. And what I really like as a personal touch to it is to find a way in creating a difference into not just having this textile or technical product coming out of the end of the check, but really something that has meaning to the world. And I think that's also where the trend presentation did. Yeah, that was amazing. In. You did a mega trends presentation, yeah. Yeah. which I think for some of the scientists and engineers was a, quite an eye-opener, looking at the way in which you guys view the world mm -hmm. and maybe the way in which design can start to challenge some big world wicked problems. What about the megatrends? Now looking back, can you kind of recap on a couple of them and talk about a couple of them in terms of their relevance to Trash to Cash? So we presented back in Helsinki the, the mm. megatrends. Lots of times when people talk about trends, they think about what's in fashion right now. When it comes to megatrends, it's really about how the world shifts around, what happens to society. 
So how do you think that went down with the mixture of people in the consortium? I think at first I thought, what is she doing? <laughs> like I started out with asking everybody to, to rip an elephant out of a paper. So we have to do that sometimes, like do something crazy so you get really active and enthusiastic about the topic. And then I showed all these, these examples of trends and I asked everybody, if you see something interesting, then write it down on your post-its. And later we took it to the big posters that we brought showing the five different mega trends. And then I just asked people, what do you think would be important to trash to cash as a project? How can we connect? And people first started hesitating, like, should I put it on the poster? But yeah. eventually people became very enthusiastic and they kept on sticking things to the poster and telling yeah. their stories. There was almost a sense of actually sort of maybe with some of the sciences and engineering fields, you're kind of quite in your lab space yeah. a lot of the time. And that, I remember that session it felt like everybody was looking at the world together mm -hmm. and then realising that they could bring a skill or an expertise or a, an yeah. angle yeah. to actually addressing a, yes. a world problem. Yeah. It was quite an exciting moment, I think. What I really noticed is that people kept on using the terms later on in the rest of the workshop. Yes. Oh, this really connects to yes. ageing. Yeah, <laughs> it was a point of connection for all of us, wasn't it? When we suddenly yeah. started talking... Almost like you brought a new language in through these trends, through these mm. mega trends, and then we all had a common space to be yeah. in, and that felt like the first time for the consortium that we all had the same space we were occupying. So welcome to this podcast. We've just finished workshop eight and uh, we're in Bilbao and I've got the opportunity to talk to Hansu Muzaglu, who is working at Shoktas in Turkey. So tell us about the company that you're currently at, Shoktas. Shoktas is a textile company which is fully integrated and located in Turkey. We are producing some fabrics for shirtings, jackets and trousers. And we work with the most known brands in textile industry. Is it your customers that are asking you to become more sustainable or is it the sort of ethos of the company? Uh, actually, for both, um, because our customers always demand something much more and much more. So uh, we should produce uh, some sustainable products for our next collection and also our customers can be demanded some any other sustainability options. So what? how does that sort of um, work for you in the company, your sustainability kind of criteria or targets? What are you kind of working with? We are working for some Turkish standards firstly, uh, is if there is some law changing we should directly adapt. We are working to directly adapt new standards. And on the other segment, maybe some customers' demands for their own standards, we are working for it. And also in our R&D center, we are working for increasing our creativity, product creativity, and decreasing our consumption and any kind of studies I think. So when you say decreasing consumption you mean of maybe water and electricity water. and chemicals? Yeah, yeah, you are totally right. We have some yearly or monthly targets. We want to achieve this for 
uh, our water consumption, energy consumption, and chemical usage. We are uh, follow our targets actually. Welcome everyone to this latest Trash to Gash podcast. We've just finished two whole days of very intense workshopping. It was workshop number five and Matilda and I have taken ourselves off to a corner. We're going to have a chat about the work that Rayma's doing and how that contributes to Trash to Cash. So Matilda, tell us a little bit about Rayma. Okay, so Rayma is a Finnish children clothing brand. We do functional clothing for children and our key issues are functionality, safety, sustainability, innovations and of course nice design. And Rayma, how long has that company been running? Well, Rayma has a very long history. It was founded in 1944 in this little town in Finland called Kankampa where a bunch of skilled people started making working wear for ladies from army snowsuits and tents. We've been working with high quality materials ever since. So they were making clothing from old army materials. Yes. Oh really? So exactly. a really so the recycling early recycling. On ah, yeah. excellent. How important do you think the functionality of the clothing is for you? When you know when you're looking for materials, what are you looking for? It's really important. Of course, it depends on the use. Our key product, outdoor garment, then the children are tough users. Mm. <laughs> they need to be waterproof, mm. water repellent, abrasion resistant and comfortable. What other materials, what's the journey through material innovation that Rayma has taken since the 40s? When the focus moved on kids, We started developing fabrics together with fabric manufacturers uh-huh. and that lead on this quite famous fabrics called Instex and uh-huh. that was used for outdoor clothes for kids. And then the R&D work continued and in 1994 we represented Reimatec fabric which is waterproof and abrasion resistant. It's also water repellent and dirt repellent so it's really easy care and it's durable might stay good for ages from mm. kid to kid and it's even used nowadays we still have some Raymatech collection so you're the original design driven material innovation people really in a way because you were mm. working with your producers really early on saying look we mm. need our materials to perform in a better way you know what do you think you can do for us i'm going to ha- ask you one more thing at the end of the project what would be the best rayma outcome It would be recycled and recyclable product, complete product, not not just fabric, with some nice quality performance. So it would be good quality, as as we have nowadays, but it would have some kind of add-on. I don't say what, what it could no, be. No, could be a range of things. Yeah. But yeah, that's a lovely vision. I can mm. see that too. So recycled and recyclable, performing well, but with an added function that you haven't got at the moment. Yeah. Tall order, tall order. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> so I'm here with Jada Damako at the end of workshop 10 in Slovenia, and we're going to have a chat about the project with Jada now. So welcome, Jada. 
Thank you. Um, Grado Zero is a design innovation company specializing in fashion, textiles, and smart materials, working with both large multinationals and Italian artisans to produce radical new prototypes. We always need to think about the context in which we are working in. So it's not only about product development, it's also about envision scenarios of, of use and the, the user expectation, what they, what they need. So we can uh, um, really, we really want to focus on the, on the users and uh, without having uh, so much impact from the environmental point of view. And also, I think it's, it's changed also the role of um, uh, designers because they have more responsibility. They, they feel this responsibility now probably, uh, rather than the past. Mm. And it's good, it's really uh, interesting to uh, work in this particular um, moment, probably. Mm. Yeah. And <laughs> it's more challenging, of course. Yeah, because, it is. But very stimulating. Mm. Sometimes the, the clients come to us and they ask for a spe a specific samples that we probably uh, develop for a different customer, for instance or a different uh, project, but um, they want something that probably is not what they want. I mean, we need to translate also mm. their uh, needs and try to communicate that every, every project is different. So probably the material in which you are interested is not optimal uh, one for, for, for you. So we need to always adapt, start and, and doing materials development. Mm every time so there is yes, it's more standard. human isn't it it's more human it's basically going yeah. okay you think you want that let's start with the basic questions of you know yeah. what is it you actually want yeah. to, to do and let's check that it is that material or that yeah. idea you know and yeah. so it does become innovation in this materials context becomes so much about having human skills mm -hmm. having the ability to say to the client okay, let's, let's work it out, let's work out if that is what you, you need and if that will answer mm -hmm. your requirements or actually whether what you need is this, something else, yeah. you know, and that's a skill, isn't it? And so, so designers are having, this, having to have this material knowledge, this life cycle and sustainability knowledge, um, some sort of technical knowledge, and then this ability to bridge over to engineering and, and hard science right. as well as kind of commercial client conversations so do you think designers should try to do all of that or you know <laughs> what do you think designers should uh, in the future what yeah should probably facilitate this dialogue is uh, for sure yeah and try to to understand what is the the vision behind and trying to 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 keep this um, vision during the development. Welcome to another Trash to Cash podcast and today I'm with Christian Tobito in Milan. Christian works at Material Connections Italia. It's one of many global offices located across three continents with incredible material libraries. So welcome today, Christian. Thanks, Mackie. The main part of our office is dedicated to the library, the material mm -hmm. library. So we are uh, 
surrounded of samples of materials and samples of processing technologies, you know, and technologies and so on. Has it changed much in the time you've been there? Are you sort of having less plastic and more natural yeah. composites or what's the, what's the sort of general change? The general change are bio-based materials, yes, let's course. say. Also textile film, because um, textile industry is one of the industries that create a lot of innovation in some way, you know, in terms of structure of the materials. So yeah, it's changed because at the beginning was more related to um, performance innovation, you know, uh, so with features of materials that have to perform something. Nowadays, uh, the more, of course, topic is the sustainability. So they have to be recyclable or they have to have uh, re uh, recycled contents and they have not to have chemicals. So let's say that the performance now is a standard. Mm. The main topic is this kind of you know, aspect related to the sustainability. You became the main facilitator for the Trash to Cash project, bringing that understanding of the challenge of putting the creative process at the front end. What's it been like as, as the main facilitator? The main challenge in this project is to stay always on track and informed about the project implementation and the activities and about issues related mm -hmm. to this implementation of the project. So sometimes you have also to prevent the issues or foreseeing the issues in order to set up a plan that the tissues don't compromise the work of the other. It's a, a real sort of skill to be able to manage a process, to be in the room and manage lots of different people and lots of different questions. Do you think that we could do a project which is a, in this sort of collaborative way without having a facilitator? No, I don't think so. I mean, no. Really, not in... I don't think no, so. No, it's just you just can't work without somebody yeah. else bringing you along, can yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, because of course each partners they have expertise in the they clearly know what they have to do, what they have to deliver, and everything. But this is not enough. When you work in an interdisciplinary project, the knowledge sharing is very important. The collaboration, interaction, let's say between this person and competence is the main value in this kind of project because what you the real results is also obtained through this knowledge sharing in some way. Yeah, that's brilliant. The, the real knowledge is obtained through that knowledge sharing. Exactly. So it's knowledge sharing doesn't happen automatically or easily. Actually, you have to tease the knowledge out. You have to show people, give them a way to share. Yeah. Uh, it's You can't just have people turn up and say, right, now you share. You know, no. oh, now you. Because actually what you get is a series of little lectures that in, in a way are, are not reflective in the right way or are not sharing in the right way or are not addressing qu quite the right question for the needs. And so you need this curator, you need exactly. this, this circus master. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Something like a cultural liaison, mm -hmm. but the culture uh, is not related to social cultural difference, you know, when I speak about uh, cultural liaison, but uh, mainly difference based on uh, domain of knowledge. I mean, uh, because 
people uh, talk about their knowledge considering the background and the other peer, let's say, but in this kind of interdisciplinary project where there are totally different worlds, also uh, if there are experts, you know, uh, in uh, LCA rather than in other, it's quite, it could be quite difficult that they are able to talk and understand each other. For example, you know better than me that one of the main problems that we had at the beginning of the project was to understand that huge amount of fibers for the R&D people was few grams. Mm. Uh, huge amount or enough amount for design uh, for um, manufacturers was, were kilos yeah. of that fibers yeah. and understandable quantity of material for the designer was a textile yeah. that required you know enough material yeah, that they exactly. could play with yeah, so, so you have these all problems. these people use mm. the same word amount huge amount of materials but in every field this word means something totally different because yeah. a huge amount of fibers also for the designer don't say nothing. Trish to cash is a not real environment in some way because it doesn't happen in the real life, professional life, to have this huge amount of competence, this huge amount of persons and tasks and actions and so on. But it seems that is more powerful than the real, you know, life. Because it's something like in a lab in which you have all the ingredients and with all these people you have to create something. So it's an extraordinary experience in terms that is not ordinary. Welcome back to this special diff episode of the Trash to Cash podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to those outtakes from our podcast series. Do go to iTunes or SoundCloud to listen to the full episodes. Hopefully we've whet your appetite for more. Speaking of more, now we move on to part two of the episode, which was recorded back at the Centre for Circular Design at University of the Arts London, just a few days after we'd shown the final project results at Dutch Design Week in October 2018. The team sat down to discuss how the show went and what the audience had to say about our ideas, as well as looking back across the whole project and highlighting some of the greatest challenges and breakthroughs. Right now I'm here in the Centre of Circular Design at University of the Arts London with some of the team who brought this show at Dutch Design Week to life. I have Brad Turner, Dr Rosie Hornbuckle and Dr Kate Goldsworthy who are all here to help in this special issue. Hello. Hello, Hello Becky. <laughs> um, so we just got back two weeks ago and we showed the final prototypes, the six master cases at Dutch Design Week. We were in Hall 3 in the Embassy of Circularity. How did you find the show? Brad, you set it up. How was that? I did. It was surprisingly finished on time. <laughs> Bang <laughs> on time, a, which is a, a rare treat for these things. You did a brilliant job actually helping us to design and then install six of these final master cases and the three reprocessing technologies as well. 
How did it go down with the audience? Yeah, it was really popular. It was very interesting. It was my first time at Dutch Design Week. I've been to many international design festivals, design and furniture festivals. So I know the industry very well. I hadn't made it to Dutch Design Week and I was really impressed by the, the volume of the audience. It was really busy, uh, but also the, the variety of the audience, really international and completely different kind of competencies and interests. So there was scientists, designers, but also just the general public who had a real interest. Great. And so you helped design this sort of um, complex set of information into something for the viewers. And then you stayed on the stand and you had all these conversations over the, the first weekend. So Dutch Design Week gets around, I think they said, um, you know, nearly 400,000 visitors in total around Eindhoven over that 10 days. Mm. And um, so you saw a fair number of those come through. What, what was the most interesting conversation you had? Do you recall any of the, the conversations around any of the master cases in particular? So I did have lots of interesting conversations and it really covered the, the whole spectrum of what the project was about, really. So I had some quite challenging conversations with material scientists and people who worked very closely to some of the areas of innovation that the project was about. But yeah, the, the conversations really ranged from interest in the zero waste pattern for the, the zero degree shirt to commercial availability of the various innovations mm. and also of great interest was the the process the collaborative process which really stood out from other exhibitors there yeah so I'm going to pick you up on that one because absolutely it's something about that complexity and those collaborations that was of real interest to the audience and I think made the work we're doing stand out quite rightly I think because it's been no small feat to actually bring so many different experts together to finally focus down on sort of six products. I'm going to move on to talk to Rosie now about those six products and some of the ways in which we did work together. Because actually some of the feedback we had was that methods would not be of interest to industry visitors or the general audience. They don't want to know about research methodologies or frameworks. But in a funny way, that plinth, that exhibit, actually had a lot of interest. People were really sort of impressed, really, from the range of photographs and the different workshops we described, that we managed to bring all these people together to work on ideas. Tell us a bit about that, because this is really your area of expertise in the project. I think when we were designing the exhibition, we thought that we might have to show the complexity of that collaboration some way in a visual form. But when it came to it, we thought that that would be too much for the, the type of audience that we were going for at Dutch Design Week. And actually, what, what, we, what we did in the end was simply show all of the different logos of the partners. And that was enough to tell the story. People understood when they were talking to us on, on the stand they understood that that was a very complex and also very impressive, very challenging and exciting thing to see. And relating that to the professional quality of the prototypes, they could see that what, what we'd achieved was enormous. Mm. On the little plinth that we developed a poster for, we simply had images of all the workshops that we've been doing, with showing everyone working together, different aspects of those workshops to do with the materials, how we present information, all sorts of different ways in which we've worked. And I think people, when they saw those images, that really told the story of working together in a way that any kind of complex diagram 
couldn't in a way. That was really a nice aspect of the show that I think worked really well with the audience. And it started a lot of interesting conversations around how this could really be the future Picking up on what Brad said, I think people were much more sort of impressed by the sh- by what we produced because they could see that this uh, collaboration between a lot of different stakeholders around the life cycle, they could see that that is the future and mm. that this actually generates not just some interesting products, but also something which we can take forward in new ways in different industries and in different sectors and each of the partners can sort of take their share of that knowledge um, and experience of working together and in, into their own work and their own fields. Absolutely so for those that took part there was a real buzz amongst some some of the partners this time you know when we meet for workshops it's really challenging and we work really hard and by the end of the two days we all feel like we've definitely progressed but it's never crystal clear exactly what we've achieved it kind of takes a while for the dust to settle for us to then sort of do the next piece of work when the partners came to see the exhibit at touch design week there was definitely a sense that we had achieved these six new products together and presenting them in this way to a big public audience was a real there was a real sense of achievement amongst the partners and just behind the scenes you know you've been one of the people who's been watching these collaborations grow and build over time and noting uh, the tools and the techniques that have worked. And what were your highlights from the project in terms of how we managed to bring together these people? I've just been writing the methodology report for this project. So I, so that's involved sort of deep dive into the, the, the specific research studies, um, looking at the different ways we've used the tools, the workshops. But it's also then involved looking at the project as a whole and trying to understand what it means going forwards. And I think that that what you see when you look at the project as a whole is you see this real learning journey that when you're in the thick of it feels so messy and so confusing and so complex. But the reason why everyone was so excited at the end was that you can see that all of that hard work, all of that learning to communicate, learning to work together, understanding different disciplinary fields and how other people work, all of that hard work, all of that confusion actually came together And each one of those products, those prototypes, embodies the knowledge of so many different disciplinary areas and expertise that, I mean, actually only the partners and through telling their own stories could really appreciate Mm. what what that shirt holds within it, what its story is in terms of how we've worked together and the collaboration. And I think it's I think it's really promising for the future because if we're going to um, tackle circularity, we really need to have all of that expertise in each of these end products. We really need to have the life cycle thinking. We really need to have the manufacturers, the scientists working together so that that product, that end product is as good as it can be for circularity. Yeah, brilliant answer. Thank you so much. It's illuminating for you to think back through those messy moments when we're in the middle of it and it doesn't feel clear what everybody's role is, but everybody has to sort of trust each other and just participate and uh, and follow the process through. And now everybody's seen that we can make these finished prototypes together and that they can have this meaning and this full story around the life cycle. I would hope that they can go away and think it's okay to be in those messy moments and those that, that sort of state of unease during the process, it's meant to be like that. Mm. And I think that in itself is very disruptive. You know, mm. if you're in a job and you're meant to know what your role is and you're meant to know how your department works and everybody else, 
you're, you're honed into a, say, a sort of sense of this is how things should be. Mm. But actually to collaborate around the circular economy, it disrupts all of that. Mm. To innovate, we have to really sort of let go of lots of those normal aspects of how we work and just throw ourselves into some quite unexpected moments. I'm going to come to you now, Kate, talking of unexpected moments <laughs> at the end, because you were doing some brilliant, in the middle of the project, life cycle thinking exercises where you got people around really big round tables and getting all the different experts to sort of fill in their expertise to make up some of these big life cycle stories. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how that worked? I mean, life cycle thinking was... A really interesting part of the process and links a lot to what Rosie's been talking about in terms of collaboration and I guess I really saw it as bringing the circular voice and the circular framework into this highly complicated collaborative process you know throughout the whole the whole project um, it ran really from the start of the design process right through to the end of the the master cases when we were reviewing their their success and I guess because innovation in this project was so strongly linked to these incredible new technologies that you know we were basing the work around the the science that was um, responsible for for the high level recovery of the materials, it felt like that became such an interesting focus for the design brief that by bringing in the circular thinking aspect, we were constantly sort of checking that everything we were doing was fitting that circular journey and of course all of the different experts and stakeholders in that process had a different part to play in that Um, and by trying to simultaneously at times bring these expert voices around a life cycle and as as you described sometimes physically around a circular space we were sort of able to build conversations circular conversations that could be iterative but also you know very responsive um, within the design process because there's something about the sort of science of life cycle assessment. Like earlier in the podcast series, we talked to Gustav and, and you know, he's sort of um, been involved in the science of assessment for a really long time. Uh, but he's brilliant in that podcast interview for talking about how he can see the role of designers being crucial to his science. Do you want to mm. build on that a little? I think, yeah, the, there was a whole part of the project we called LCA meets LCT. And it was so fascinating because I think early on in the project, we realised that the this kind of environmental science or LCA expertise normally is at the end of the end of the process when you've got the product and you're you're auditing the decisions you've made but we always wanted to bring that right into the heart of the of the design sort of strategy for each of, of the master cases and again that had to become a conversation that started right at the beginning and they would sort of give us pointers in a way on existing information that, that was out there, existing data, and then we would rethink, redevelop, um, and then they would change their response. So it felt like trying to blend those those processes of design and LCA was a, a big part of the project for us. Yeah, definitely. I mean, to try to be inspired by LCA data and then make a different design decision and then from that design decision sort of feed a, a brief through to... Um, a scientist working in regenerated materials it's a it's a model I can't see in front of my eyes mm-hmm. if I hadn't had the experience of trash to cash if I didn't know that that was possible it would sound like a fairy tale it would sound like you know something that was just unachievable really but it is about bringing people together around the table and listening to their ideas and points of view and 
and really sort of learning from each other in a face-to-face context quite often. I mean, I, I think that learning went on right to the very end, don't mm. you think? Even in even at the point when we were presenting these stories for Dutch Design Week, that kind of you know summarising process that everyone went through was a like shining a light on what the stories and the and the the projects were actually about. And even at that point, the expert sort of descriptions or information that was bubbling up was was really mind blowing. I think as well, what's interesting about that is that. I think as designers, we kind of all knew that as you go along, you've got this confidence that at the end, even though it feels like everything's kind of complicated and messy, that you know that at the end, you're going to come to this end result. But not everyone in the process had that sort of insight. And so that's why the end result was so nice, because they could see what we knew probably, well, felt sometimes at times not feel, but <laughs> felt would come eventually, that, that there would be this clarity at the end, and um, which... Mm. Luckily, there was. I mean, that was nice as well in in Dutch Design Week when, you know, in speaking to people on the stand, you realise that obviously the whole exhibition was based around these six final prototypes, but that actually the prototypes themselves were just the tip of the iceberg. Mm. And, you know, the, the idea of each of those stories and prototypes really disrupting or, or trying to address an a quite big challenge in sustainability and mm. circular thinking mm. and so as well as you know being impressive materials and the fact that they come from these incredible recovered um, technologies or recovery technologies they were also actually dealing with um, sustainability impacts and, uh, and, and specific issues. issues yeah I mean that's the, that's the nice thing about the end the end prototypes is that the clarity comes from the amazing process that we went through to kind of hone down millions. Well, how many were there in the end? Like quite 30, at one stage, at one, at one stage, quite a lot of design concepts, mm. and that that process of choosing together and defining and and, and honing down into just six. It was very deliberate. Mm-hmm. There was a deliberate decision to choose design concept mm-hmm. based on what the context that we're in in circularity in the environment and social issues so it's not an accident that what we came with with these nice sort of finished end products. they were ambitious they were really ambitious and, and really challenging and they're only partially resolved in fact we like you say that the tip of the iceberg we've only just begun to address them by coming up with these prototypes which in a sense is a disruptive idea in itself that we're showing products at a design show effectively launching them that are actually in some ways only the beginning of mm. that prototype mm. you know the, the 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 science needs to be refined there needs to be scaling up there needs to be user testing you know some are closer to market than others but what they do show which i think is a reason for people to look at them is a vision for what design can do and what design can do in collaboration with scientists and other experts and 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 actually how designing a product is a totally different thing than, in a sense, how we might have been taught at design school before now. It's so different. In a way, they're not products, are they? You know, the final products all represent sort of ideas and progress and innovation that could then be applied, again, to lots of different situations. So, you know, as well as all of them having this incredible closed-loop material journey, you know, there's zero waste, there's... Mm materials that are being made recyclable that weren't recyclable before there's microplastics sort of uh, solutions all kinds of really big concepts wrapped up in these (laughs) prototype packages 
the products themselves, they felt more like uh, vehicles or tools of communication for the project. Mm, um, and I think that was maybe slightly difficult for some of the audience to get their head around. And as I said, they were very used to, as you said, to, to seeing maybe final products. And obviously there's lots of innovation within design exhibitions as well. But I think even more so in this case, uh, taking in those complex issues and the, the collaborative aspect of the project and then communicating those lessons and what we'd uh, found out during that process through these objects and these ideas. So, of the six master cases, which one was your favourite by the time we got there to Dutch Design Week? Which one did you enjoy talking about the most, Brad? <laughs> uh, for me, because my background, I guess, is less in the area of textiles or fashion, it's more in industrial design and, and kind of materiality as it relates to kind of objects and products that people buy. I was really interested in the Fashion Fascia's master case and how it would take a waste textile and make a solid object, which was, for me, very um, innovative and revolutionary. And what also interested me was that it required each of the technologies to get to that final stage of making a, a solid object or even the material that can then be manufactured into uh, an object it required each of those technologies and each of the stages uh, to, to do that. Absolutely, and truly innovative to take sort of polyester dressing gowns, make pellets, make a hard plastic, and then laser etch in that wonderful way mm. with a kind of new, um, uh, a new sort of range of colours and, and patterns and surfaces. So, and cars don't have these upcycled, new sort of recycled materials in them at the moment. No. So. Quite exciting, really. Rosie, what about you? Which one resonated? For me, I guess, thinking from a methodology point of view, <laughs> the Reborn, Reworn Mastercase was quite nice because when we did a reflective exercise with the partners, they actually, to find out which of the Mastercases had some real design-driven elements in it, that came out on top. Um, I think mainly because there were it, there was innovation at different levels. So there was um, innovation at the fibre level. It was they managed to produce microfibers from cellulose, which which they hadn't been able to do before. They hadn't thought to do before, and it also had this retaining colour, which was nice addition. But it also was trying to tackle this replacement to polyester fleece, which is causing microfiber microplastics pollution in the ocean so it was working at lots of different levels it was also designed for recycling so there was no avoiding fixings um just a nice one which worked at different levels for me and and that was recognized by the partners so also from process point of view it worked really well absolutely and a very very positive response on the stands to new baby garments that were really as as sustainable as you could possibly imagine right now, I would think. If you think back 20 years to sort of the first organic baby grows, you know, this has come a tremendous way since then. Kate, what about you, your most favourite disruptive prototype? Well, I think other than the two that have already been mentioned, which were fantastic, I really like the recyclable rainwear, the R3 coat, because I think it worked on so many different levels. You know, obviously it's made from one of our sort of high-tech recovered materials for polyester, but it's also designed in such a way and using processes that can be recovered again at end of life. It's tackling a product that 
normally has huge barriers for recycling. You know, a, a mm. children's wear PVC or PU coated um, raincoat is incredibly difficult to recycle and children grow out of it fast. So it's it's kind of a, a big problem wrapped up in a small package. And like uh, our kids, really. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> exactly. And it also had a really interesting element of high tech processing with, you know, breathability being introduced mm. by some really um, very precise <laughs> sort of uh, holes being cut into the material to, to allow airflow. And then finally, all of this kind of presented within a new business model, you know, um, thinking about the longevity of the garment and how it could be. Uh, rented rather than than purchased, which for children's wear is brilliant. So it kind of felt like it took something, yeah, something very ubiquitous and, and common and short-lived and kind of made it as close to perfect as it, it could be. And it's close to market. So for others who are listening and, um, you know, can go and listen back through the podcast archive that we've made, what are there any that you would recommend that they listen to to sort of help them on their journey? All of them. <laughs> well, they've all they all tell a different story. That's what's beautiful about the about the podcast is that uh, we tried to choose um, participants in the project from who could tell different perspectives on, on of their experience. And of course, everyone's an individual, so it's just nice to hear different perspectives, different individual perspectives, and personal stories about those those people who took part and contributed. There you have it. Go and listen to all of them. <laughs> Take the day off work and listen back to all of them. I think from uh, my perspective, because I joined the project uh, relatively late, for a lot of the time it took me a while to get my head around the project because it was so complex, because there were so many partners, there were so many, as you said, uh, what, 31 different mm-hmm. concepts being explored at one point. And, uh, yeah, to try and take all that in and to understand it within... Uh, the kind of the larger picture of the project was quite a challenge but certainly as as things have gone along it became clear that for the the complete circular aims of of what the project was about it required different partners at different parts of that circular um, process Mm. I think Christian's podcast kind of was really good for me to kind of have an overview of, of that process and he facilitated a lot of the project and so that put a lot of things into to context that had slowly emerged in my understanding as, as the project had gone on. And really for me, it wasn't until I think uh, I stood there on the first day of Dutch Design Week and I was faced with some people asking me questions or there were some tours going around and I had to, to tell the, the kind of the organised tours of Dutch Design Week what the project was about, that it kind of just flowed out of me. And that's when I realised that... It's, you know, it's crystallised. I mean, it makes mm. sense. And mm. and that was a really kind of satisfying moment, personally, for me on the project. Mm. I think these, these issues we're trying to solve, if we think about the fashion, textile industry and other product industries and sustainability and impacts and new materials and trying to create circular business models and loops, it's a complexity that few designers can imagine themselves actually taking on and being excited by it just seems like an enormous mountain you need to climb with no equipment you know so I think that the project is a really good base camp for where you can tool up get ready get the perspective on on what needs to happen and find your teammate you know link yourself with a rope to your chosen team and and climb together 
I think that was such a, a big insight that none of us have to know the whole journey, mm. but we have to find ways of linking up with a team so mm. that everyone can sort of bring their area of expertise. Mm. Um, but still, you know, pushing out into new fields and, and mm. crossing over and kind of blending that expertise. But And yeah. I hope one of the things that actually comes out of the project is a, an appreciation and more understanding about kinds of expertise and that unrecognised expertise might be more around the kind of role that Christian took, for example, of being the connector, being the facilitator, being the manager of the Gantt chart. Creating a safe space in a way. It always felt like a safe working atmosphere for everyone. Absolutely, because you could have the best scientists in the world in regenerated um, cellulosic in the room, but unless they were comfortable and looked after in the right way and connected to the right groups of people and being probed with the right questions with the right worksheet in front of them nothing would happen you know so it's not a given that people can collaborate there's this amazing expertise that links us all and I think resourcing and tasking that kind of facilitation is is sort of underdone in in projects like this one of the key recommendations which came out of a lot of the different research areas was that we need facilitators for different aspects of the project. We need facilitators like Christian who look at the project level and have a vision for how the project can run in an interdisciplinary way. We need facilitators for knowledge integration, someone specifically looking at that aspect. We need facilitators for communication and we also need facilitators for workshop activities. So there's lots of different forms of facilitation but they're so important for getting people to understand each other, to be able to work together, to resolve those differences and making the, the challenges sort of easier to bear because there are lots of challenges in working together like this. And is that what we would call innovation management or is it something else? Because for me, being a designer and a maker on the project, as well as a kind of communicator, I could facilitate sometimes because I knew the design process and the material that everybody was meant to be exploring which would might mean that those kinds of roles could come into the curriculum in more traditional fields. I mean, how do you see it? It's collaboration management in yeah. a way. Well, I don't, th- I don't think it's even just management. I think there's facilitation on different levels in the project. Mm. One of them is management. But I think designers, I've been thinking about this for a long time, about what it is about designers that makes them so good at enabling this communication, this bridge building. And I I think it could be something in design education, but something that could be fostered more about sharing, about communicating your design ideas, for example, in the crit situation. But that, I, that, that ability to kind of enable people to, to see each other's points of view and translating between different disciplines, telling stories, is all, is something that designers are really good at. And so put into a situation where people are not communicating well, a designer will naturally take on that role because it's something that we sort of, I guess, are trained to do, but I think could be trained more Mm, to do. More consciously. And it's something which will become increasingly important in the future as Mm. these sorts of interdisciplinary projects become more and more relevant and are more and more important. Mm. Right, I'm leaving the room. I'm running over to another area of the university right now to start talking to the course directors in uh, textiles and some of the other fields because I completely agree with you. We need these kind of complex collaborations to progress towards more sustainable contexts And we don't really know how to have them and make them happen. So unless we kind of just throw ourselves in, you know, we can't we can't leave it up to chance. We actually need a little bit of a conversation around around enabling people to make these collaborations happen more and more easily.
If you want to know more about the project, please do go to the Trash to Cash website where you can read the full papers, you can watch films and by the end of November you'll be able to download the final white paper and project PDF. So thanks for listening, diff people. See you somewhere in the future circular economy. Over and out.